This is the Pop Culture Podcast, and this is our standard disclaimer. Be aware that the subject matter discussed this week will include massive spoilers about whatever movie, TV show, or other bit of media we talk about today. If you want to experience it in its original form, simple, then just don't listen to this podcast first. Go watch the movie, the TV show, read the book, read the comic, do whatever. Then get back to us feeling completely assured that you can listen to this podcast completely unspoiled. Consider this to be your one and only warning. Enjoy the show. Welcome again to another episode of the Pop Culture Podcast. The POP stands for Perspectives on Psychology. I'm your host, Dave Ayers, licensed professional counselor, suicide prevention trainer, amongst many other things. Extensive 20-year history working in the mental health field, so most of it really was with people who had suicidal thoughts. So that gives me a pretty solid perspective to talk about what I've been talking about for the previous 10 episodes and this episode, the series 13 Reasons Why. I've entitled this little series of my own, 13 Reasons to Talk. 13 Reasons may not necessarily equate to 13 episodes. That's how it's worked out. So I'm going to live with that and deal with it. The new season of 13 Reasons Why is out now. But I'm going to get this out today. At the same time, I meant to get it out before this. I'm going to be slightly behind. I can live with that as well. I hope you can too. If you are a new listener, I thank you for joining me. I appreciate your time in giving this some consideration and give it a listen. I encourage you, if uh, you enjoy this episode or enjoy some parts of it, dig into some of the back catalog. It's all available on SoundCloud and iTunes. If you are a regular, if you've been around for a little bit, I thank you for continuing with me. I really appreciate your uh, continued listening and following, and I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope that means you have enjoyed it. Or maybe you're sitting at home doing the Mystery Science Theater 3000 thing with me and making fun of me during the the uh, podcast. That's okay, too. Keep listening. I'll, I'll, I'll take that as well. I'll take it as a compliment. This episode is going to be a little different in format than some of my other ones. Uh, the last 10 have all focused on one specific area of focus, one topic related to 13 Reasons Why. This one's going to wrap up my final thoughts on the series, uh, on the series, uh, season one of the series is really what I mean to say, as season two begins now. I don't plan to treat season two as I've done season one, as I've mentioned before. So we're not going to have this long stretch. I'm going to delve into some other areas and some other things and hopefully have a little, you know, a little less heavy subject matter because 13 Reasons Why really is a very heavy series. It's largely well done. It's largely well produced and well acted. At the same time, it has its faults and has its flaws, which I've reviewed before. But at this point, I just have a few stray thoughts, a few things I want to wrap up as we dig into this. And of course, I look in my inbox this morning, and what do I see? I see a message from the QPR Institute, QPR being the format of suicide prevention training that I conduct and have done so for uh, the past 10 years. And they have already sent out, first thing this morning, the toolkit on talking about 13 reasons why sent out for all QPR instructors, but also to be shared with educators, parents, etc. And it's interesting reading a lot of it's stuff I already know, already familiar with and already have talked about. But it's just a reminder that this series has had a pretty significant impact 
in the mental health field, especially in the areas of depression, suicide training, and and in particular, how that impacts young people, adolescents, pre-adolescents in many cases, and young adults. The series is, uh, you know, a pretty big deal. Netflix doesn't release ratings, so you don't know what it is. All you can tell is how much people are talking about it, and it's been talked about a lot. So we'll dig into that a little bit. We'll dig into some of my other stray thoughts, various little topics and various little segments here, rather than a full-length program focusing on just one topic. So let's get digging into that. The first off on my mind is taking a look today... First thing I did before I did this was I got up, took a look at what the new uh, message was in front of the series. I understood there was going to be a new warning message ahead of each episode. At least I'm going to assume it's each episode. I didn't check all 13 of the new ones. I didn't check the old ones. I checked the first one of the second season. And I'm going to say, you know what? Nice job, guys. Much, much better warning. Much better and much clearer warning. It's reasonably a little bit overdone, but I don't know, maybe they're worried about people being able to read it or something and it getting a little wordy if they put it all in just words on the screen where it can be ignored more easily. But what they have is all the actors of the series, the stars of the series, taking a moment to give a message to the viewers. Basically saying what I've said before, you don't watch this series alone if you are struggling with these issues yourself. You are taking a risk. Unfortunately, what happens for those who may be struggling with suicidal thoughts is that watching others deal with it can heighten their own feelings and put them at greater risk of of doing something to hurt themselves or take their own lives. So I'm very glad to see that they're very upfront. They're very clear. You, you don't watch this alone. If you are struggling with a lot of this stuff, you watch it with an adult. You talk to somebody ahead of time. And if you need help yourself, you get help. I am going to still continue to level one criticism at them. And this is, again, if you've listened to my series on this, I've been back and forth on my feelings as to exactly how altruistic the intentions are behind this series. In many ways, I want to believe it. I don't personally know Selena Gomez as as an adult who didn't watch any of her shows, listen to any of her music, but is aware of her as an individual. I get the impression she's someone who is reasonably genuine as far as celebrities go. I don't doubt her intentions. That doesn't mean I can't doubt the intentions of others and still doubt hers. There's a little bit of cynicism that comes with the position I'm in because you see and hear a lot of different things and you give a lot of opportunity to question the intents of those out there. Not necessarily the clients or the patients you might be working with, but a lot of government, a lot of agencies, a lot of health insurers especially. They might seem like they want to help. They might say they want to help. They don't always. So I don't know in this case. And Netflix is there to make money. That's what they're going to do. But here's the criticism. As I build up to that, here's the criticism. Stop directing people to your own damn website. Stop it. That to me seems very self-serving and strikes me as just a way to get more hits on your website. You know what? If you really want to help, direct people to the websites associated with you know, the the suicide prevention organizations out there, direct people to call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. Stop sending them all to your own stinking website. Come on, guys. You are not the authority on all of it. I don't care what you've been doing, and I don't care who's advising you. You're not the authority. At the very least, include other websites besides your own. That being said, 
I'll let you go on the rest of the other stuff. Much, much better warning. I appreciate you guys taking the time to do that. Probably a lot of people are going to skip over it when they can because they'll get tired of hearing that rather long-winded version of things. And maybe that's just for the first episode and they'll shorten it for other stuff. I don't know. doesn't matter. I do give you credit for standing up there and saying what I've said before. If you are struggling, don't watch this alone. If you are struggling, maybe don't watch it at all. If you have a counselor or a therapist you're working with, get their opinion about you watching it. Go talk to somebody first if you're struggling with anything about the series. Just be careful. It's not an easy thing to watch, and especially when you get into Hannah's suicide, that's exceedingly difficult to watch. I'll admit, I haven't watched it through uncovered eyes yet. I don't want to, don't need to. I can imagine it just fine in my head, and that's plenty for me. So getting back into it, I mentioned that my my 13 Reasons Why Toolkit, as they call it, from the QPR Institute was mailed out. Uh, I don't know that they created this. You can find it if you want to look at it yourself at 13reasonswhytoolkit.org. And again, they have sections for clinicians, for students, for young people, all those kinds of things. It's, it's not just geared towards clinical folks or teachers like myself. It's for parents and it's for media. And media, unfortunately, plays a big part in a lot of this. And at times I've considered whether or not at some point in time I'm going to devote an episode to media coverage of some of the things we're talking about. In general, I've wanted to devote this series to this podcast series to fictional works, not looking at everyday things, because really what I'm not here to do is debate social issues or get into a lot of that and just spew my opinion about how everything should be done. What I want to do is just take a look at how things are depicted in the world of fiction. So I probably will not go there, but it's hard not to when you have a series like this that really has such an impact on the the real world itself. It's there. It's it's You can't avoid it, which upside downside. You can't avoid it, but maybe that's okay because it's about time people stop avoiding the conversations. And I've said that before as well, so I won't repeat it. One of the things that, uh, a couple of things they get on there is they talk about guidance on viewing. Like if I'm talking to a client of mine, if I'm talking to students that I'm training, again, they, they like to advise not just that at-risk people not watch it, or at the very least don't watch it alone, but to a large extent, they advise against what is a big, big, big pastime these days, binge-watching, and binge-watching in isolation. Yeah, you know what? It's a heavy series, and to get beaten on that, beaten on the head on that topic and those issues, especially if you're struggling with them um, for 12, 13 hours, whatever it eventually rounds out to be at the very end when you've tallied it all up, that's a bit much. I don't know that anybody needs to do that to themselves. There is more than this, just a drama series here. This is not Game of Thrones. This is not Grey's Anatomy. It's not that type of series where it's really just dramas and things that you can detach yourself from. This is a series that if you're struggling with mental illness, and a lot of people that might be struggling with it are going to be drawn to it, if you have that and you watch this, you're going to relate maybe a little bit too intensely to these characters and that can heighten the emotions you're already experiencing and heighten some of the urges you might already be feeling. Spread it out. Give yourself a break. Don't binge watch it. Binge watch other things that are more enjoyable and more pleasant, especially if you're depressed, especially if you're feeling down and anxious. Do things to relax yourself. Don't do things to continue to feed into it. There's an old story I like to tell in a lot of therapy sessions when I'm talking with people to help illustrate. I like to speak in metaphors in therapy. And I like to talk with people about the idea of what are you doing that's helpful for yourself? What are you doing for things that are not helpful for yourself? And this is an old Native American story. 
and it centers on a bunch of young Native Americans sitting around the fire, hearing stories from their elder. And the elder tells them the story of everybody within themselves has two wolves. These two wolves represent opposites within us. They represent feelings, emotions, and urges within us all. One wolf represents caring and kindness, sharing, honor, faithfulness, all those positive aspects of life that we try to promote within one another. The other wolf embodies anger and hatred and selfishness and greed and destruction, the things that generally tear societies, families apart. These two wolves are forever at battle within us, constantly struggling for control and for dominance within us. And as he's telling the story, one of the young people has, you know, raises a hand and asks, but, but Elder, which one wins? The Elder's response is, the one you feed. It's a pretty simple, straightforward story, but I like the way it illustrates the idea that we forever have to be conscious of which side of ourselves we are feeding, which aspect of ourselves we are giving the most time and energy and, and, and input into. So that being said, the reason I say that is the idea that if you are already depressed, if you are already anxious, if you are already having suicidal thoughts, watching this show, is, is that going to feed the wolf you want to feed, or is it going to feed the wolf that continues to make those emotions grow stronger? I get it. It's something you relate to. It's something you connect with. But you got to ask yourself, if I'm watching this, which wolf am I feeding? And binge-watching is feeding that wolf a lot whichever one you are. Uh, it also recommends to a large extent, and this is what we're doing throughout a lot of this and these podcasts, is, is the idea of, of having discussions, you know, about the risks involved with all of this and watching this and, and the, the kind of things that we watch on TV. There's, there's so much TV, online, whatever you want to say. There's so much violence, trauma, and stuff like that involved in the shows we watch it's important that people be aware that when you're watching that, what are the reactions that you're having? How are you experiencing these things and how are you reacting to them? And again, which wolf are you feeding? And in, and as I've said, they, they want us to recommend that if teens are watching the show, they watch it with an adult. Yeah, I can imagine that can be kind of uncomfortable if you get into the scenes where it involves substance use and sex and, and all that kind of stuff. But guess what? If you're a teen, there's a pretty good chance your parents are aware of this stuff. It's not new to us. We've been around. If you're an adult and you think your teen doesn't know any of this stuff, depending on the age, you might be fooling yourself. You might be fooling yourself. I, I have gone by the adage that kids always know more than we think they do. They're always aware of more than we think they are, especially in this day and age with basically unlimited access to information. Don't, don't fool yourself. But have a conversation with the child. Talk about it a little bit. Talk about what it'll be like to watch it with them. Talk about how they'll feel about that. Ask them, well, what things do you think you're going to see there that you think I don't think you know about? And I'm going to flat out recommend, if, if you're talking about a kid under the age of 12, 11, it's really not appropriate viewing. It, it's really not. But that doesn't mean they haven't already dealt with some of the stuff or experienced some of the stuff or been exposed to some of the stuff. So that's a bit of an opinion on my part, maybe based on a world I used to know. You got to make a decision for yourself and for your family when you're doing this. That's all I can say. You know yourself, you know your family, you know your children, you know your parents, you know those all better than I do by far. But make sure you're conscious of the decision you're making.
And of course, it recommends that clinicians who work with teens may want to consider watching the series themselves. Yeah, okay, we got that. I'm done. I'm, I, I finished that. <laughs> I'm on top of it. You almost have to. You almost have to if you're in the field. The, this has had too much of an impact. There, there's a lot of other things out there that deal with ideas and aspects and concepts of, concepts of mental illness. Some of them much more on the geekier side of life where I will be taking this series. And, and for one example, uh, Legion, the FX series based on Marvel Comics. I'll be digging into that at some point in time because that gets into a lot of concepts. As a matter of fact, season two seems to want to spend five minutes at the beginning of every episode doing a little, I don't know, I'm going to call it at the moment until I really think about it and have a chance to review it in my head, pseudo-educational pieces about aspects of psychosis, really. So it's out there, but this is a series that's had the biggest impact, and I think because it's so real-world grounded and so... Uh, direct in its approach. So, meanwhile, they also recommend we do what we can to guide thoughtful journalism. I mentioned that very briefly uh, a little bit ago. And unfortunately, there's a lot of aspects of journalism with which I take issue this day and age because too much of it is focused on the sensational and too much of it is focused on the political to the point where it becomes very difficult to tell when they have stopped giving you facts and started giving you opinions. And so much of them are blended together to the point where they're almost trying to dictate that here are the facts and here's how you should feel about them. That's not okay. Topic for another day. I'm not getting into that right now. <laughs> and of course, meanwhile, they do want us to do what I always do. I recommend help-seeking behaviors. If you need help, reach out to it. I know if you're a teenager, you're more likely to talk to your friends. You're more likely to talk to people your own age because to a large extent, you don't feel like adults will understand and unfortunately, the series, 13 Reasons Why, and this is something I've not really talked about, but it goes a long way towards promoting the idea that maybe adults aren't able to listen or understand. We see various times where people bring up some of these tough questions for a teacher in the in the series. And, all right, let's be fair, in, in the way it's depicted, they're kind of catching the teacher off guard, and it's not a teacher who's expert in that area, and the teacher is left kind of flat-footed as far as what they can respond to it. So they seem reluctant to really respond and engage in the discussion. Mr. Porter is, is portrayed as incompetent. The principal, whose name I never remember, <laughs> um, he comes across as purely looking out for the school's interests and not looking out for the interests of his students to the level that he should be. And Hannah's parents, even her parents and Clay's parents, as much as they are engaged and supportive of their kids, we never much, and no, I shouldn't say never, we don't much see Hannah or Clay open up to them. Clay finally does open up to his mom and does have a discussion with her about what he's been going through. Thank God. I'm surprised he didn't do it sooner, given the history. But that's kind of what teens do. They, at that age, developmentally, are more focused on the relationships with their peers. Those are more important to them than the relationships with their parents. And I was there, too, as a teen. I didn't talk to my parents about emotional stuff. I didn't share that with them. Always looked at it as, I don't think they'll understand. So that's how it is. But we want to help to encourage folks to see that the lines of communication are open and can be open. And there are people that can help. And some of those people are adults, believe it or not. That's actually the way it happens. So this, this is kind of the preamble to, okay, season two is here. Here's what I'm seeing so far in the first <laughs> two minutes, three minutes, however long it took me to watch their, their ad, um, ad, their <laughs> intro, their warning video. And and the preparation, you know, it's like, 
Hey, everybody get ready. Here it comes. All hands on deck. 13 Reasons Why. Season 2 is dropping today. Get ready, folks. So those are my thoughts on that. That's that's how it's seen from the perspective of a clinician like myself when these things are coming out, especially if we're aware of it and we know it well. So that's stray thought number one. So the next topic on my mind regarding all of this that I didn't really get the opportunity to get into previously was the the idea of how suicide affects and changes the grieving process. We talked about the grieving process, but we really, really haven't talked about how suicide specifically impacts that and in many ways directly impacts the parents when we're talking about especially a teenager, uh, an adolescent who has taken their life. And what happens when we're talking about bereavement or grief after a suicide is it becomes a lot more complex. It becomes much more difficult than the usual bereavement. And there are a few ways in which that happens. Largely, some of the effects of it, the impacts of it, that are typically seen in a death, a loss, is that the feelings are prolonged. The feelings that one experiences, shock and, and numbness, are prolonged. Feelings of guilt and responsibility may be prolonged and heightened. Seeing somebody pass away after a long battle with cancer, or seeing somebody pass away after a brief illness, or somebody passing away from even an auto accident, in many ways, is different than the tragedy of suicide. Because what somebody is faced with with a suicide is that the person who took their own life did it on purpose. The other things were things that, hey, it was an illness that they fought as hard, hard as they could, and medical science did all it could, and just wasn't enough in the end. Or it was something that came on so quickly and so suddenly, and there just wasn't anything anybody could do. Or it was simply that, an accident, a motor vehicle accident, or something else that happened that one could call, say, an act of God, or just something that happened. This is the person chose to end their life. And I think that's more of a struggle for a lot of us, if not all of us, to be perfectly honest. The idea that this person we cared about took their life on purpose. And so the shock hangs on longer. The disbelief hangs on longer because you just don't want to accept that idea. You don't want to accept that, hey, it's hard enough to accept them being gone, but it's another, another thing to accept that that's what they chose to do. And that can leave, you know, family members feeling more so, uh, abandoned, hurt, angry because of what that person did. It seems like they chose to leave us. The other times, the other cases are not people choosing to leave. This is people choosing to leave us. They decided death was preferable. And it almost in all circumstances has nothing to do with the other individuals in that person's life when they decided to end it because they stopped thinking that much about those people and were so consumed by their thoughts and feelings of their own pain. But it's that idea. It's like, it's like a rejection. It's like we've been rejected and it's, harder to accept that this person not only rejected us, but rejected us so much that they ended their life. So a lot of that gets wrapped up in that, in these heightened emotions that just linger longer. It, it, it's a harder thing to process through. Feelings of guilt and responsibility for it are heightened to the extent where sometimes it even becomes unreasonable. Uh, we see that depicted in 13 Reasons Why to a large extent by by both Clay and Alex, as I talked about, you know, the idea that they were blaming themselves largely, Alex, for not still being her friend and seeming to want himself to be punished severely for that, and Clay for not having the courage to stay in the room the night he and she, he and Hannah hooked up, 
even though she pretty much told him get out and in no uncertain terms, I believe the, the exact command she gave him was get the fuck out. So maybe get the hell out. There was an expletive in there. I'm certain who wouldn't have walked out there at that point in time, who would have kept trying to say, Hey, look, I'm going to continue to agitate this person trying to stay here and talk to them when they are very clearly want me out of the room. And as we see, fortunately he's, he's, literally talked down from the ledge by Tony when he's having these thoughts. He wanted to blame himself, and not just for her, but for everything, for the rape, for Jeff's death. I mean, Clay wanted to take it all on. And that's not an unusual reaction with all this, because we start doing all the woulda, coulda, shouldas. And with a lot of things, it's easy to do a lot of woulda, coulda, shouldas, but when the idea is that maybe you did or didn't do something that drove somebody to end their life, I think that's a bigger struggle. And then there's some of the more visceral aspects of a suicide and this is something that i think the series completely didn't touch on at all they spent all this time going beyond the book going beyond the novel and developing and, and introducing us to hannah's parents and showing us a lot of what they went through and to a large extent it doesn't feel like they really gave much time or attention to the idea that they're the ones that found the body we saw the trauma they experienced when they came in and found her and how their reactions were to that. We did not see the lingering effects of that. And that's something to consider that may be easier to forget unless you're the person who does find the body. That if somebody takes their own life, somebody's got to find them. Somebody's going to locate the body at some point in time, in pretty much almost all cases. And to consider the traumatic experience of coming into a room and finding your loved one dead on a sofa on the floor in a bed following an overdose and oftentimes you don't look good when you died by overdose by a long shot i don't know how many people look good dying in any particular circumstance but it's worse um somebody that shot themselves somebody that hung themselves finding bodies in this state in and of itself is a trauma for the individual who comes across that and that trauma can linger depending on the level to which the person addresses it and gets help for it. They can experience nightmares. They can experience panic attacks. And along with nightmares, whether you have them or not, you can suddenly find it difficult to sleep. And lack of sleep is something that's going to eventually have a rather negative impact on your mood. So that's important to consider, that, that there's this that's in addition to my loved one passed away, uh, I found their body in whatever state and i imagine that can vary according to the level of feels like it's almost too gruesome to say but the level of damage done to the body in the course of the suicide you know like i said finding somebody dead in a bed versus finding them hanging by a rope versus finding them having shot themselves in the head uh, to, to a large extent i think will impact the degree to which that person experiences it as trauma the one that finds them or maybe not because it's simply a loved one so Things to consider as far as that goes, as the, as the process of, of recovering from that kind of grief. It's important as well, too, to, to recognize that because of the stigma that surrounds suicide and mental illness, you know, where on one hand, your, your loved one passes away of cancer, you may have all these people step up and talk to you and share their stories of loved ones they lost from cancer or their experiences with themselves or loved ones surviving cancer. And maybe you set up this fund to, for people to donate for cancer research and cancer charities. And a lot of people are going to come out and very, very openly support that and join in, share stories. I imagine you don't get a lot of that when a person dies by suicide. 
when your loved one dies by suicide, most times it's not mentioned in an obituary. It doesn't say what's going on. You don't see charities listed for donations very often. You don't hear it much discussed. And that can lead to the grieving people feeling very isolated and very alone, and maybe even a sense of shame, depending on their views of mental illness or what they feel people are reacting to their mental illness in. It's, it's, it makes it harder to grieve when you can't share it with somebody else, when you can't talk with somebody else, when you can't share experiences and feel support from the community. If the community suddenly avoids you, as we, we saw to an extent, I don't know how much of, of what they experienced was about Hannah's death and people reacting to that and how much of it was people kind of feeling guilty about the fact they abandoned the baker's pharmacy in favor of uh, the Walmart-type store that was featured in there and, and feeling guilty that they took their business elsewhere and maybe a combination of the two. I think at one point in time, as I look back in my head in this, it's like, okay, which was a flashback scene and which was a present-day scene with the Bakers sometimes? So there's that, and that complicates things even further, because part of how people get through grief and get through emotional trauma is is by talking with others, is by communicating and sharing with others. And when you don't have that opportunity, it just makes it that much more difficult to recover. And let's add in one of those practical things that, again, didn't get talked about at all. We didn't see it at all. Now, I would say perhaps enough time in the storyline had passed between Hannah's suicide and the beginning of the quote-unquote present-day scenes that, that obviously maybe that part was over. I kind of doubt it, but I have to admit, I don't know a ton about the specifics and, and the usual types of flow for this process. But what we didn't see and didn't hear about was the fact that when a suicide occurs, the coroner's office becomes involved. The county coroner, some investigative body will look into it and make a determination about the cause of death and make a determination about was this intentional or not. Obviously, in some cases, such as we found a body of a person sitting in a bathtub with both arms slid, that's kind of obvious that was intentional. There's obviously some other cases where it's an overdose that may not necessarily be obviously intentional. So what we didn't see and didn't hear about at all was the Bakers dealing with the coroner's office and any investigation into Hannah's death. But certainly that would have occurred as part of that story in real world. So they didn't deal with that, they didn't address it. That in and of itself has got to be difficult. I mean, think about that, to, to have to talk about the facts and be and have an investigation going on and review what happened and review what you saw and, and all these things and, and whatever else is involved with that and just keep reviewing it over and over complicates things further and, and can kind of re-traumatize people a little bit and seeing if there's a story about it in the newspaper depending on how that's reported that can be re-traumatizing so it's not like your loved one passed away from cancer in a hospital surrounded by friends and family it's very 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 different and and amongst many other things the, the idea that we see that people will start to be preoccupied with uh, well nouns people places and things related to the deceased and their death that can happen necessarily in almost any case where somebody passes away, especially a young person. We maybe have known people or heard stories about families kind of keeping their child's room intact as it was the day that person died, almost, quote-unquote, like a shrine to them in remembrance of them. They, it's too painful to clear it out and move it away and put it away and pretend like the person didn't exist anymore, so people just kind of keep it intact. It seemed a little bit less what was happening with Hannah, but the time period was also kind of short, so... I don't know that that was going to be something that was going to stretch on and on with her parents in a sort of pathological sense, or if that was something that, hey, they hadn't gotten to it yet and didn't feel motivated to it yet. 
and understandable because we're talking anywhere from about five weeks to several months after her death. There's no rush. But we see Mom sitting at her desk and looking over her things and, and reviewing all of it. And I don't think that was purely about Mom trying to investigate and figure out what happened. I think that was Mom just looking at her things and, and being preoccupied with them and, and thinking about Hannah and, and imagining her and, and trying to hold on to whatever pieces of her she had left. And I think that's a reasonably accurate depiction as, as things go. We didn't hear it talked about. We didn't see it a lot. I don't know that we saw it a ton with Clay, like him going back and revisiting places they used to hang out. We didn't really, and I'm thinking back, did he quit his job at the theater? I don't recall that I remember him doing so. Maybe he did. Maybe something I forgot, but it's not like he went and hung out there, which was one of their prime places to do that. Or revisiting uh, the rooftop where they sat and, and looked at the stars the one evening or and all that. It was... He was busy chasing down what was going on with the tapes. That's mostly what we saw. And a lot of the other things we've talked about, you know, rumination about the circumstances of the death or persistence feeling of being shocked and stunned. You know, it, it's, these are things that are pretty common in the grieving process in almost any situation. But these are the ways in which you got to consider that suicide seriously impacts those left behind, especially parents. And this is the largely, largely what it looks like and what it feels like and what it sounds like for them. That this is going to be a prolonged struggle. It's going to be more complicated and oftentimes it's going to be more lonely because this is where we're at. And this is the thing I've said over and over. People need to talk about this stuff more openly. We need to talk about mental illness as if it were another type of illness, cancer, diabetes, Parkinson's, whatever. We need to stop treating it like something to be hidden away, ashamed of feeling disgraced about whatever that's not what it is it's an illness it's like anything else and unless we do to push it away and the more we do to let uh, open conversations happen the more we can help people better recover from it and maybe we can mitigate these things like suicide contagion and all that because people are talking about it more than just reacting to it internalizing it and then at some point in time perhaps repeating it things to keep in mind it's, it's an important aspect of it. I don't know that the show addressed it a whole lot as much as they could have, but I don't think they did a terrible job either. They nailed some of the things. And again, you got to remember, some of the stuff is so subtle that I'm not quite sure people that are not clinically oriented are even going to pick up on it. I imagine some of the stuff, if, if you haven't been through it, if you aren't aware of it as a mental health professional, you may not notice it. So I'm glad they included it. And I'm always in favor of subtlety. I like subtle messages in many ways, but I almost don't like them so subtle as to be imperceptible. So it, maybe I'm maybe I'm bringing out some things that weren't thought of by a lot of people in the series and weren't noticed or recognized for what they were. So hopefully that is in itself a bit helpful. So that's stray thought number two. And the final thought I had about this, and, and to a large extent, I, it was something that occurred to me as making in itself a separate episode of the podcast. And then upon further thought, I thought it really wasn't dealt with all that much in the show to justify focusing on it as a fictional element. It is more of a real social element, more than it is a an element of the show as as it goes. Uh, and that particular topic in my mind was the the idea of sexuality. Uh, in particular, in, in reference to LGBTQ individuals and, and focusing a bit on Courtney and what happened with her and her relationship with her fathers, 
we, we see in her an individual who's not ready to come out about her sexuality, leading to her basically throwing Hannah under the bus and directing attention towards her for that photograph that Tyler took without admitting to her own part of it. She, she tried to distract everybody by, oh, it's Hannah, look, it's the slut, blah, blah, blah. And therefore, attention was misdirected or not misdirected, but redirected towards Hannah and away from Courtney so that Courtney could avoid having to own up to what her part of it all was. So that seems to have an impact. And in many ways, it has an impact on Hannah. It doesn't have an impact on Courtney that we are shown in the sense of suicide, depression, or, it's, or, or something else. There certainly would appear to be some level of depression that one could see in Courtney's character, and primarily because of the fact that she's grown up with two fathers, and despite the fact that there, there's so much more acceptance of homosexuality and transgenderism and things like that out there these days, that there's still a lot of problems and there's still a lot of unacceptance, basically. There's still a lot of marginalization of these individuals to the point where they, they still end up, you know, suffering a lot of society's slings and arrows, I guess, so to speak, for lack of a better term. Uh, they're still discriminated against. They're still picked on. They're still bullied. Uh, as much as I saw in the program that I ran for many years, a lot of adolescents who came in who, you know, uh, identified as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or whatever, and a lot of acceptance amongst the folks in the group when we were there. The things that were reported was that, that were that there was a lot of bullying still going on in the schools, and these kids were fairly mercilessly picked on, harassed, and, and essentially ostracized by the student body at large, which was unfortunate. And it's important that one considers the potential impacts of this. And while we didn't see that happen in Courtney, and while we did see Courtney decide to keep her sexuality secret due to the fact that she had seen her parents, her fathers, get a lot of crap and face a lot of discrimination and such over the years, you know, she didn't want to add to that. At least that's the way the character explained it. And interestingly enough, even some of the the assumptions on the part of one of her fathers, uh, the idea that, oh, she was going to get married and have babies and yada, 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 a little bit of sexism perhaps on his part, a little bit of projecting his own script for her life onto her. And I can see to an extent that that's where she may have hesitated also, didn't want to disappoint him, did not want to break that mold, wanted to be the daughter that, that her father thought she was. So there was pressure there. And it's important to remember that most, if not all, really, LGBTQ individuals face these kinds of pressures and face these kinds of concerns, and it's significant. It's not something to be blown off because the studies are showing that. Uh, the most recent figures, I think for the most part, are from about 2015 government studies. It, one thing to keep in mind is that, again, suicide second leading cause of death amongst people ages 15 to 24, some state 10 to 24. So if you want to be even more distressed, consider the fact that 10, 11, 12, 13-year-olds, second leading cause of death amongst them is also suicide. Unfortunately, it's on the rise. But if you separate out the LGBTQ population by itself, then here's some things to consider. 
they contemplate suicide three times more frequently than do heterosexual youth and cisgender youth. Three times. They are five times as likely to actually have attempted suicide in comparison to their heterosexual and cisgender counterparts. So when you boil it all down, they are much, much higher risk simply for the population they belong to. They are at much higher risk for suicide attempts. So let's think about that in a moment. I've spent a lot of time talking about the stigma surrounding mental illness and how a lot of folks with mental illness are oftentimes hesitant to, to admit to it and get help for it, for fearing that it's going to have negative repercussions for them socially or even professionally. Now think about if you were a person who was lesbian or transgender or bisexual, how much have you just added to that? Because you were already, to an extent, a minority group that faces discrimination on a pretty regular basis. Unfortunately, still. Give that some thought. That's how much more risk they are. Studies show that of transgender adults, 40% of them, 40%, close to half, reported having made a suicide attempt prior to the age of 25. That's high risk, folks. That's seriously high risk. And if you're looking at a case of somebody in this population, LGBTQ, that comes out of a family that is highly rejecting of their, of their orientation, of their sexuality, of their identity, they are more than eight times as likely to have attempted suicide as those who have low levels of family rejection. So add in the stigma of mental health, or mental illness, I should say, add in the stigma of mental illness, add in the socially difficult, to say it with some bit of understatement, status of being an LGBTQ individual, and then add in a family that is also rejecting you. That's huge. That is huge. And that's what happens is these individuals contemplate and eventually try to take their own lives. And unfortunately, I don't see statistics here to tell us how many of those are fatal. It will give you a good idea of how quickly or how frequently they are dying because of this stuff, because of this marginalization, because of the bullying, because of the rejection and isolation. It's a scary thought. I mean, it's a very, very scary thought. And I think if, if you're a parent of one of these individuals, I think you need to heavily consider that situation and do what you can to open up. See, what scares me in a certain sense is for, say, the character of Courtney, if she were a real individual, we're seeing a couple of parents who have these expectations for her as a high performer, as, as, as an achiever grade-wise, as a student body participant and all that kind of stuff at school. She's a big deal and she's trying to be a big deal and they apparently aren't fully in touch with her and listening to her and she doesn't feel comfortable talking to them in fact she says at one point she's jealous of hannah having a much closer relationship with her parents than she has with her fathers so that distance that gap between them in real life would have the potential of leading to her thinking about considering suicide and maybe even making the attempt to end her life 2015 data shows that at least 10% of LGBTQ students were threatened with violence or injured with a weapon on school property. 10%, one out of 10. A third of them were bullied on school property with or without a weapon. And nearly a third of them were bullied electronically, social media. And almost 20% of them have experienced physical dating violence. That's staggering. 
that is staggering when you put those numbers out there to think of the situations these individuals end up experiencing. And I think at that point in time, it, it hardly seems a surprise if they are struggling with depression and or anxiety and or thoughts of suicide. And in some ways, you know, a lack of a open connection with parents in an individual similar to Courtney with all the performance expectations on her, I would say even places her at higher risk. You know, say this story had been a little bit different and had focused on Courtney to begin with and her sexuality had become public knowledge in that school. Can you only imagine? the level of bullying she would have experienced, easily comparable to, if not based on these numbers, worse than what Hannah experienced. And the sad part about it is the story would likely have ended about the same. So that was the one thing I wanted to touch on. And a lot of that is real, real world numbers, real world concerns, has nothing to do necessarily with the show itself, which is why I didn't make it an episode unto itself. But I wanted to touch on it. I wanted to talk about it. I don't know if it's going to come up as any kind of issue uh, as far as the story is concerned, as far as the show is concerned, when we get into season two. Some of you may know that already. Heck, you may have already watched the entire thing already by now. I have not. I have been too busy this morning to be able to do that between this and clients that I had to see. So I, I want people to keep that in mind. Th these are serious issues, and I think we need to figure out ways to change this dynamic change what is happening so that regardless of, of what somebody's going through, suicide isn't an option for them. It isn't something they consider seriously. It isn't something they consider as a rational, reasonable option. We've got to get people talking about these things. We really do. And as Clay says, it's got to get better. That's all I can say. It's got to get better. And that there was stray thought number three in today's episode 11 of 13 Reasons to Talk, and the final thought I had on season one of 13 Reasons Why. Okay, and so that wraps up this episode of the Pop Culture Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you listening. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you enjoyed this little stray thought collection of things I had rather than the typical one topic episode that I've had. I hope you enjoyed the little transitional elements I threw in there just for fun. That's kind of a little bit more reflective of how I'm going to be taking the podcast down the road here. A little more fun, little lighter hearted discussions, little, uh, you know, dipping in a little bit more into the geek pool of television, comics, movies, etc. Matter of fact, uh, the next episode will be featuring a discussion about probably the most popular Avenger in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You could probably guess who that's going to be. You'll find out soon enough when the next episode comes out. In the meantime, as I always remind you, be kind to everyone you meet. You never know what battles they are fighting. And when you see mental health and mental illness portrayed on TV, in the movies, wherever, check me out. I'll be here to clarify what they are showing, let you know how accurate they were or were not. Thanks again. Take care.